broken um, four ribs. He'd had some internal damage with um, his lungs and his kidneys. His pelvis was intact, but every, pretty well every bone from his pelvis to his toes were broken. Uh, the bones that were just sheared straight in half from the impact. So yeah, there, there wasn't a lot going on, it was good. Just the center north section of the child, there's one on the fourth. He's breathing okay at the moment. Is it a big property? That blood pressure is not coming up. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Wiradjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. There are a handful of jobs that I can honestly say, hand on heart, that I would never do. When a major storm has hit our region and there's a blackout because a tree has fallen across a power line, or when a car brings down a power pole, or when there's a short that has to be found, there are trained people who have to solve the issue, and they're called electrical linesmen. This is one of the jobs I would never do. They install repair and maintain power lines across Australia and there are more than 7,500 competent and skilled people that keep power to all of the houses and businesses across this very large country. They operate at great height and work with both low and high voltage power lines. A short while ago I was contacted by Glenn with a story about his late father Reginald Thompson who had been an electrical linesman. The story is an amazing one. So I'm pleased that Glenn is here to walk me through what happened. G'day, Glenn. <laughs> G'day, Lana. How are you going? I'm good. That's good. Before we jump into the story of your dad, can you tell me where you currently live? I live on the Gold Coast, um, Surface Paradise, on the Esplanade. So I live right on the beach, which I'm blessed to be doing. I have a great view of the ocean every day. Sound of the ocean is awesome. It's probably in the background there, but um, busy at the moment because they're sending up for the Gold Coast 600. Right. It's a beautiful part of the world. What do you love about it? I guess I love the the beach lifestyle. I love the attraction of um, living in the city. I lived in the suburbs for many years and we recently moved to the Gold Coast Strip. It wasn't a big move. It was only a few kilometres. But, yeah, so it's been a, a, an awesome change of lifestyle. But, yeah, love the fact that I can walk across to the beach, meet various types of people, tourists and locals, um, right through from people that are struggling in life to people that are quite affluent in life. So it's diverse. I like that. And you're a trained horticulturist for your occupation, right? Yeah, I'm, I am a horticulturist by trade. I've, um, yeah, after playing football for many years and being given the opportunity to take on trade, I took on horticulture. Fantastic. And your family is there with you? Yeah, my family's here. I live here with um, my wife and my, uh, my son, which is my youngest child. My other two daughters are growing up and, you know, having their own families. Um, his name's Jake. He's a budding um, director and is studying at NIFA. My wife is a, um, a maternity nurse at Gold Coast University Hospital. 
Oh, fabulous. We always love nurses here on the Flying Doctor podcast. (laughs) Now, you didn't grow up on the coast, uh, Glenn. You grew up in regional New South Wales. Where was that? I did. I grew up in Orange, New South Wales, which is out near Bathurst. Most people know Bathurst because of the the car races. But, yeah, I grew up in a cold climate, um, lived there. As a child, I moved um, when I was 18 years old. And when you were young with your family there, uh, I understand uh, you lived in a commission house with both parents working. What do you remember of that time as a kid? Yeah, we did grow up in commission home. I'm quite proud of that. My mum and dad worked really hard to achieve more in life from a, a rough start. Yeah, but I remember making great friends, friends I'm still with to this day. Um, and been on their life journey with them. Yeah, and slowly but surely working our way into um, a better area and out of tougher times. But, yeah, I had a great life growing up. Um, made many friends, great sporting life. The sport was big in the country, still is. A lot of people still playing footy and netball and stuff out there. But it gave me many life values, and I've still got many family members still living there. Now, um, can you tell me a little bit about the relationship with your father as well? Yeah, my dad, um, like, I I was the only son in the family. I had an older sister who was a few years older than me. So at times I had a checkered past with my dad. He was a hard man growing up from the school of hard knocks. So, yeah, at times he, he, um, when he dished out punishment, he dished out punishment from an old-fashioned stance but um, did teach me great life values and respect. Not to say he was violent by any means but um, or anything like that. He was a reasonable guy, but um, he understood that I needed to know the values of hard work and mm. he embedded that in me. And was he a courageous man? Because he worked as an electrical linesman. Is he a man that uh, would take risk generally just in, in, in his hobbies and his other activities outside of work as well? Yeah, he was. He was... Um, I think I get that from Dad. He was a risk taker, um, not so much in terms of career or lifestyle, but yeah, certainly a risk taker in adventure. He had an awesome sense of humour. He was always classed as the work larrikin. He was always playing practical jokes on people, myself and my family included. Yeah, he had a, a real reputation of um, of creating humour out of adversity. Yeah, he did a lot of things, like he was an awesome rugby league player at country level. He played in a, um, a rugby league team called the Aces, which were undefeated for many, many, many seasons. And he was a pioneer in water sport, so he was one of the first people to embrace water skiing in this country. Wow. Yeah, so he, he entered in competitions in that. I've got some great photos of him being the halftime entertainment at the Australian National Championships back in the 60s, where he was dressed as a baby in a pusher strapped or bolted to two wooden planes being towed behind a ski boat at about (laughs) 40 kilometres an hour. He was certainly keen on taking on adventure. (laughs) Right. Now, his name was Reginald Thompson. Did he have any nicknames or was he just called Reginald? Um, he had a couple of nicknames. Most of his work colleagues called him um, Choco because of his darker skin. Or Reggie was a favourite with people or the old school Tomo 
which um, mm. I'm blessed with to this day. Right. Now, Glenn, could you explain what a linesman does and what the work involves and the skills that are needed to perform it? Okay, so it's one of those jobs that people sort of take for granted, but it's, it's quite integral and important with um, society. So always out doing repair work on lines to maintain the electricity was always connected. A lot of dangerous work with um, storm activity. I remember in the 70s, about 1973, I think it was 73, when Cyclone Tracy went through Darwin, him and some other guys were asked to go to Darwin to help reconnect the electricity after the horrific cyclone that went through that, uh, that region. And it was quite dangerous work, but he, was, he always embraced that stuff, took it on because he felt that there was a need to um, do a good job and make sure people were safe. When I see linesmen to this day, I, I understand the importance of their work. It's quite an important job. Had he been doing it for a long time? Originally, he was a welder by trade. Um, and he um, used to work for a local hardware company in welding and whatnot. And then um, somewhere along the line, he picked up a job with the county council as a welder. And then they traversed him into the trade as an electrical linesman, which he loved. Right. Now, you were about nine years old and you mentioned to me that you still vividly remember the day that your dad had an accident. Could you walk me through that day and what happened? Yeah. I remember I was at school. I was in primary school at the time at um, a little public school called Bletchington Public School. It was one of those typical old school, you know, 1970 weather bullet schools with a, a brass bell in the courtyard to ring for recess and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, and I remember my teacher at the time, her name was, and I really stretch my memory to remember this, but her name was Mrs. Elliot. And she uh, marched in and was straight after recess in the morning. We just sat down and she marched in with her authoritative walk that she used to do and said, Glenn, I need to see you immediately. Please come to the hallway. And I went out to the hallway and she told me there'd been an accident and um, that my mum was on the way to pick me up. She didn't really tell me what it was. Um, she said, I'll let, you, let your mother go through those details. And I waited in the principal's office for mum to come, wondering what was going on. And was your mum a long way away? I presume she was fairly close. Yeah, she was quite close. So it was only a four or five minute drive from where we lived at the time. She popped up and picked me up and I remember her wearing a long black leather jacket, looking um, quite elegant at the time, but with a devastated look on her face and told me there had been um, some bad news and that my dad was in a bad way. Did she say what actually happened? She did. Um, she put me in the car and we headed off. I said, where, I remember saying, where are we going? And she said, we're going home to pick up a few things because we'll be making our way to Sydney. And I said, why? And she said, because your father's fallen off the telegraph pole at work. And he's in a pretty bad way and we don't know how he's... She was quite honest. She said, we don't know how it's going to end, but he's strong and we think he'll be okay, but we're not sure. But we have to be with him. So she went on to tell me that he'd fallen. She didn't really know the details at that time, but she was keen to find out. So meanwhile, if we sort of shoot back to today, <laughs> you know at this point exactly what had happened to your dad. Yeah. Would you be able to walk me through the work that he'd been doing and, and the accident and what you learned later on had actually occurred? Yeah, so I, I do know a little bit about that. So he was 
in those days they had permanent partners so in in their work so he had a guy that he worked with all the time his name was kevin young i remember growing up with kevin young and playing with um his kids and that sort of stuff you know you know in a small community in a small town he's a great guy so him and kevin were out um, doing line maintenance at an area east of orange called um clifton grove Back in those days, it wasn't. It was a, just a remote farming area. I think there was a small reservoir out there. That was their their beat, so to speak. So they used to go out quite regularly every day and make sure the lines were connected, repairs, repair faults. But one of the mandates they used to do was go out and make sure in those days the telegraph poles were wooden, make sure that they were in good order, and the rot in the timber was treated, chipped out painted with um, treatment solution, that sort of stuff. So they were out doing those general tasks on the day. Back in those days, before underground power, the elect- the big electrical substations were often placed high. So they were set in between two telegraph poles on a platform, sometimes three, so people couldn't get to the, the high voltage. So the tar- they'd have to climb up from the ground from a ladder and then they used to have um, stirrup pegs in the poles that they, that they then step on. I remember those. Yeah. I remember those very clearly. Yeah. And up they climb, climb up the ladder, put a safety harness on, then get onto those stirrup poles and start climbing up to do the maintenance work and get to the lines, whatever they were doing. And on that particular day, Kevin was doing the electrical component of the job on the substation. So they both climbed up to the platform. Um, Kevin had started his tasks and Dad then uh, proceeded to climb further up the pole to maintain the timber, check the above lines where the the power ran through. So it was quite high. It was up around 12 metres, something like that. That's about four storeys high. Yeah. He was chipping out some rotted wood, Kevin tells me, and there was a couple of things that happened in a sequence that was um, unfortunate. So he was on the lower part of the footsteps. To get from that section back down to the substation, they had to disconnect their harness. So they had to disconnect his harness in an attempt to go down to the substation, chipping the wood. His axe inadvertently cut a part of his safety harness as he was releasing it. And one of the foot pegs gave way at the same time. So there was a couple of things that contributed to the accident. So the foot peg gave way. Dad fell backwards. His safety harness broke as he was releasing it, and he began to fall. So as he fell, Kevin heard him cry for help. He reached to try and grab him, but was unable to. Dad was falling backwards, but it did flip him over. And Dad fell to the ground and landed on his feet. So he subsequently had some horrific injuries from that fall. Right. Kevin then went immediately, made his way down the pole, tried to render first aid. If Kevin had not reached out to grab him, he would have fallen on his head and that would have been all over Red Rover, right? He would have died, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. So though it was a terrible sequence of events and very unfortunate, there was an element of of luck that he ended up landing feet down 
but the impact falling four stories and landing on both feet uh, resulted in what injuries to your dad? Yeah, so the injuries were quite um, traumatic. So he'd broken um, four ribs. He'd had some internal damage with um, his lungs and his kidneys. And his pelvis was intact, but pretty well every bone from his pelvis to his toes were broken. Wow. There was hardly anything that was not shattered or split in half. So the x-rays are quite amazing when you see the x-rays of the bones that were just sheared straight in half from the impact. So, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot going on that was good. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-Max Utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them. Okay, so let's go back to you're in the car with your mum and you are heading home to grab a bag to follow to Sydney. Now, I understand that while you were in the car with your mum working to try to get to Sydney, meanwhile, the local ambulance was dispatched and they had to get them get your dad to Orange to the hospital. Is that correct? Yeah, so the property that he was working on was at the time quite remote. So Kevin radioed for help. He administered what first aid he could. I'm not quite sure what he did, but he kept Dad's vitals secure and he kept him still. I know that. It wasn't so much a great distance for the ambulance to get there. It was the fact they had to go through umpteen dozen paddocks and umpteen open umpteen dozen gates to get to where they were and find him in a time where there was no GPS and it was all follow this track, go through this gate, <laughs> that sort of stuff. Right. So it took them quite a while to get there. Kevin, Kevin's family had told me and from the stories my mum had told me. So over an hour and a half had passed by the time they'd made their way. Oh, gosh. It was quite a long time. Oh. So fortunately enough, his vitals were good, but there was an immediate fear that he was um, in, you know, in a bad way and they had to get immediate help. So it took less time to get back to the hospital because all the gates were still open and they knew where they were going. But it was still a 45-minute sort of drive to get back to town and get into the hospital. The doctor that um, initially saw Dad realised that um, there was no one at the base hospital that had the specialties to deal with the injuries they were looking at. So initially they tried to contact the air ambulance, I'm told, which I don't quite know what the difference is there, but that was not available. Yeah, so that they ended up securing a flight with um, the Royal Flying Doctor Service. 
So the air ambulance is um, a, a service that delivers uh, aeromedical uh, within certain regional areas of Australia um, or of New South Wales. And the RFDS has a, a national footprint, but particularly focuses on rural and remote. Yep. So there are times where, you know, depending on availability and, and triage and, and that sort of thing, uh, we get called in. So I understand there we were, the Royal Flying Doctor Service came in um, to pick up your dad. Uh, was uh, he taken straight to Sydney? Yes. Now, from my memory, um, we drove to Sydney whilst Dad was in transport. So he ended up at um, Royal Prince Alfred Hospital in Sydney. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they immediately rushed him into intensive care and underwent, started the undergo the process of trying to save his life. How was your mum coping with this? Because it was pretty horrific. Was yeah. she... Was she doing okay? Yeah, she was. Um, she wasn't frantic, but she was. I remember being very nervous. From Orange to Sydney is a decent drive, and when things are on your mind, as you know, like those drives always seem to be eternal. So she had myself, my sister. It had been um, we had to pick up from high school. Yeah, and we're off in a car going over the Blue Mountains, wondering what's going on, not really knowing if when we got there he'd be with us or not. No mobile phones in those days, so you're sort of hoping and praying. And My mum um, is a religious lady. My dad never was, and she was making us say prayers and wishing for the best on the, on the trip, and we were doing that. Oh, wow. Okay, so you finally arrive in Sydney, and do you remember arriving there and were you allowed into intensive care or were you, as a kid, made to wait in a waiting room? So I wasn't. I, I, I had to wait. I remember as a child it was a, an emotional time, not only for Dad, it was pretty well the first time I'd been to Sydney. I was, like, um, overcome by the sheer size of the place and um, even how Mum even knew where she was going. My sister was in the old Gregory's book, reading directions, you know, like, I only had to get to this place. And you as a nine-year-old are saying, I didn't even know this many roads existed. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, like, Siri, turn, you got to turn left at, up at the next corner, Mum, and that sort of stuff. And I was just staring out the back window in this old falcon going, wow, look at all these houses, look at all these cars and... Um, so it was a funny, funny sort of day. But um, when I got there, initially my mum was allowed to go in and see Dad. My sister, Vicky, and I waited patiently in the waiting room. Um, and I remember the nurses back then, they had these old school uniforms with, and the matron had these big cream hat on and all this sort of stuff. And it was quite overwhelming. And they were very authoritative and um, that sort of stuff. So... But they organised um, soft drinks for us and, and we patiently waited for quite a while. I can't remember the length of time. It was quite a while worrying if Dad was all right. And, and then I remember seeing my mum walk out crying and saying, um, we're not sure how it's going to go. Uh, the next 48 hours will be telling on, on how he pulls through or if he pulls through. But she was sort of preparing us for the worst. Fortunately enough, that didn't happen. He went in for a number of surgeries, obviously, and with such horrific injuries, was there at what point did they say, well, look, he's out of the danger zone. We know he's going to live, 
but he's got a serious rehab to go through at this point. Yeah, so from the stories I've been told by my mum over the years, their initial concern was the impact of his kidneys. So it was more of an internal thing. So it took around about three days before he, he was sort of out of the woods with whatever treatment they did on his kidneys to make sure that um, they were functioning properly. He'd been placed in stable traction. I remember my mum telling me that. But then they had to work out what specialists they had to get involved to work out how they'd repair his body. I have to ask, Glenn, how do you put a body into traction if it's so broken? I don't know. I, I think from what I've been told, it was all about keeping him still. They had his legs taped together. I remember seeing big belts on his legs. And in those days, they knew what they had to do. They, they were trying to work out what bones were saveable and what bones weren't. So they knew they'd have to undertake surgery to go in there and work out what they were going to try and repair and what they had to remove. They did that. They actually removed broken bones that were shattered and beyond repair. I'm not, I'm not real good at anatomy. I probably should ask my wife to come in here. But, um, yeah, all these fibula and all that sort of stuff, they replaced those bones with, with basically bolts that were this long with a bolt head and a thread and nuts. Wow. And there were hinge joints in there. It was a whole thing. Wow. Yeah, and they were quite confident that was the, that's what they did back then. There were no pins and stuff. It was predecessor to pins. So they knew that it would probably work. But what they did say was because they were trying to avoid amputations. And I remember they were saying, there was one stage there where they were quite sure that his right foot would have to be removed because it was that damaged. But... Um, they managed to save that. I don't know how, but they managed to save it. But they they were quite adamant. They said he will never walk again. He'll be in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. That's They were quite adamant about that. And I remember thinking, wow, that's horrible. He won't be able to kick the footy with me. He won't be able to play footy. Yeah, thought you have as a child. A little bit more, I don't know, specific. I wasn't really thinking about how he'd cope with life. I was more thinking about... What won't he be able to do with me? Yeah. Well, that's what you do as a kid, you yeah. know. That rehab process, your dad was one seriously strong-willed individual mm. because over a couple of years he fought back and he worked and worked and worked at healing his very, very broken and shattered body. How often did you and your family travel up to Sydney to, to visit him on his, on his journey? Initially, we were down there for quite some time, um, but mum had to get on with life. Yeah, there was no welfare or, or anything like that. She she worked um, at the time at a, as a waitress at a little cafe called Orcorn's Restaurant or Orcorn's Cafe in the main street of Orange. You know, fortunately, society was different then, so everyone sort of pulled together to help. They made sure that she had uh, an income, to support, but they gave her extra hours. I remember having a close bond with the next door neighbours. Their name were the Turnbulls. They would run me to school and pick me up from school and do the same thing for my sister. She was a little older, so at times she'd walk or catch a bus. Yeah, just I remember uh, Mrs Turnbull cooking meals and 
generally helping out any way they could. I just love the way country Australians come together in a crisis. And yeah. Support and support each other and support families. We locally here had a, a family a couple of years ago um, and the breadwinner had a major, major um, accident which had him in hospital uh, for a long time and, and off work. And, and the whole community here raised enough money to keep that family going for six to eight months. Yeah. Um, I love, yeah, it's it's really, I think, um, a testament to the, the good spirit of yeah of Aussies and, and how they band together when when times are rough. And I think that, that happens to this day. I think that still happens. Very much so, yeah. very much so. And I think it's particularly typical in country Australia. I think it, because it's just part and parcel of how we get along and how we survive is by coming together in times yeah. of crisis. Yeah. Yeah. So you, so you were cared for by the neighbours and your mum did extra shifts and did you go often to visit your dad uh, as he continued his rehab? Yeah, so... Um, we used to travel down to Sydney on weekends when we could. wasn't every weekend, but it was it was quite regular. Mum was adamant that she didn't want us having too much time off school. She thought that was important. I'd often leave school early on a Friday, and we'd jump in the car. We'd go over the mountains, and we were staying with some people. I can't remember their names. They were cousins um, out in Parramatta. And we'd stay at their house and then we'd, you know, go see Dad and then, yeah, like Sunday afternoon we'd jump back in the car and Mum would drive all the way back home. Do you remember your dad at those times as he was recovering? What what do you remember of it? I remember a couple of things that were, that have stuck with me. So I remember the nurses saying how much of a character he was and he was always playing jokes on them. He would steal their gear, their stethoscopes and their torches and stuff and, yeah, in general, just um, muck around with them. Because he was there for so long, too, they created great bonds with him. I remember, because he was obviously going through rehab and whatnot, and I remember um, I used to go down, I used to get great joint company's wheelchair and swinging up and down the hallways at RPA and this old matron getting really cranky at me because I was disrupting other patients. And Dad used to coax me to go and do it because so, he knew there'd be a repercussion. Did it take your dad long to, to learn to walk again? It did. He was in hospital for nearly, was around about 18 months. It was a long time. He had started the rehab. I remember going to watch him in rehab, walking on the bars with the, the hand bars, trying to get his legs to move, all the physiotherapy, I remember physios and nurses doing that and rubbing liniments into his leg because I, I think at the time they thought that helped. Um, the old school radiation lamps, do you remember those things? The heat lamps that they used to, yeah, I remember him lying there and putting these heat lamps on him and I was like, wow, what, what's that going to do? <laughs> no. But yeah, I remember all that stuff and even to the point where I remember seeing him on these bars trying to move and he was desperately trying to move his legs and he couldn't. You'd see him trying to bend his knees and trying to take steps, but he just couldn't do it. Yeah, and then one day he bared weight on his legs and the nurses were ecstatic. My mum was ecstatic and he just sort of stood there for only about five seconds or so, but he bared weight in his legs and it was a turning point. Wow. So over the course of the next, it would have been um, 
a couple of years, he was in and out of a wheelchair learning to walk again. Wow. He was desperate to get back to work. He wanted to go back to work. Did he ever tell you about the accident itself? Like, did he ever reflect or talk to you as his son about about the accident or was that sort of off off the table? It's a funny thing that as I got to know my dad, as I got older and understood him better, I didn't realise at the time, I think there was a great fear there that I didn't pick up on. It was, to me, it was, he was always, yeah, but I'm going to prove him wrong. I'm going to walk again. I'm going to be able to drive a car again. He loved driving, so he, he, he didn't want to give that up. He's always focused on those things that he knew he'd miss and he wanted to to be able to get back to doing that. As I got older, it wasn't until my 20s I probably realised there was um, a lot of fear in where he's at at the time and he probably struggled with some issues later on in life overcoming that fear. Yeah, it created a, a slightly different personality. He still maintained that sense of humour, but at times he... he um, yeah, he struggled with things. Which is totally understandable after such a traumatic incident. Yeah. 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 Now, I wanted to ask you, um, out of curiosity, the accident was a workplace accident, so therefore should have been covered either by a workman's comp or an insurance or something. Was he ever compensated or the family ever compensated for for that accident or, or what happened there? As a child, I, don't, I didn't know much about that. I knew that he had some insurance in place. So I, I didn't really understand that. I do remember that he was insured with AMP because I remember in those days um, the insurance agent used to come around and knock on your door and talk about policies and get a check and all those old school things. And I remember that. But um, there wasn't really such a thing as workers' comp to my recollection back in those days. And um, we were feeling some hardship for sure. I definitely remember that. Little, little things like... Um, having to get um, school uniforms given to us. The Turnbulls, the good Turnbulls next door, were still helping out along the way, cooking meals and, and doing different mm. things. Mum was working double shifts. I remember that. She was looking for a better paid job so she could earn more money. Anything she could, she, she wanted to be a writer. So she'd put all that on hold just to cope yeah. And gave up those dreams. But um, yeah, it was quite difficult. And then um, it was, from what my mum tells me, the surgeon in place had worked on Dad and had kept communication with Dad through his rehab, suggested that he contact an up-and-coming go-getter of a lawyer in Sydney that um, was hell-bent on helping people through hardship. The surgeon actually gave that guy a call and he agreed to take the case on for nothing, which was awesome. So Dad started, Mum and Dad started the legal process and it was a funny thing because Mum tells me, and this sort of resonates with me, Dad Dad was like, oh, I don't want to tread on toes. I don't want to upset people at work. They're all my mates. Yeah. You know, the boss of the African Council was a friend. He didn't want him to be in trouble for something, but he knew that he had to try and secure something for his family. So he was going through the process of mediating with those guys saying, hey, look, it's not a personal thing, but I've got to look after my family and I don't want you in trouble and all this stuff. And 
they were, they were quite, look, at, you know, you got to do what you got to do. They were, they were quite supportive. They just wanted to see a good outcome. What was the final outcome then? So the, the lawyer that um, took on the case, his name was Neville Rand. So many Australians would know who Neville Rand is. Neville Rand went on to be the Premier of New South Wales. He earned the unscrupulous nickname of Nifty Nev. And, um, but he was a go-getter. And I remember meeting him in an office somewhere in Sydney and being overcome by this tall man that smoked a big cigar. He was quite an empowering figure for a mm. child. And, um, but he was confident he could do the right thing by Dad. And it turned out he did. So compensation pay, it wasn't huge. It's not like nowadays where people get millions of dollars and that sort of stuff. From what I'm told... Um, Dad got about $13,000, but Dad's primary concern was working. So by this time, he had learned to walk again. He was slow but moving. So Neville said, we'll organise a contract for you. And think about that back then, a work contract, which was unheard of. Yeah. And we'll make sure that you can stay that job as long as you want. I can't remember the specifics, but Dad got a contract. He gave him a job till retirement at the Alfred County Council. That's fabulous. And $13,000 in today's money obviously is not a lot, but in those days was enough to buy a house. So yeah. that secured your family's future, didn't it? It did. So it took us um, from commission living and some relatively hardship. As I said, um, made some great bonds with some of those people and still know some of those people. But yeah, it took us into a house, and I remember the irony of it. So we moved into a street called Taronga Avenue, which I thought was quite ironic because we'd spent all this time in Sydney, and I'd always wanted to go to the zoo, and I was never able to go. <laughs> but, um, I hope you've since gone, Glenn. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I thought that was a, a, a bit ironic. But um, yeah, we lived a happy life there. Dad initially they moved him into an office to do office work. He was never cut out for that and was never, ever going to be good at that. But there was a transition period which happened in, just in society. So electricity all of a sudden went from they invented underground power systems. Dad's skills as an electrician then became valuable again and he didn't have to climb. So they moved him into the underground section of Ove County Council and within a couple of years he was foreman and earning more money. Oh, wow. Yeah, and training people. Oh, wow. Yeah. Your dad, he lived to 89, which is just amazing after having suffered such an outrageous accident some, you know, 40 years earlier. He's just passed a, a few years ago. 13th of October he passed away um, three years ago. Um, so it's quite recent. Yeah, and again, the irony of that is, so what got that in the end? His kidneys. So the the sustained damage that he had from that accident many years ago, yeah, that eventually caught up with him. It was a long time later, but right. caught up with him. And um, Because when the doctor at Gold University Hospital, when he was in intensive care just recently, I, I said, well, I don't understand what's, why is he declined so quickly? And she said, oh, he's had massive kidney trauma at some point in his life. What's happened? So it did come back to kick him in the end. But yeah. he, he had an amazing 
uh, number of decades there in the meanwhile. So how, if you just reflect back on your dad and the impact he had, how has he inspired you? He, he had a couple of little stories along the way which also showed me his ability to, um, to overcome hardship. So in 19, I'll, I'll transgress a little bit, but in 1982, I was studying my HSC and I was cramming for an exam at a mate's house and it was about 3 a.m. in the morning and I saw a tow truck go past with a beat-up car on it. I immediately re- realised whose car it was and it was my cousin's car. So it was my, my dad's brother's son's car. It was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And I was like, well, what's happened to Daryl? So I was by chance only a few blocks away from where my uncle lived and I ran to his house at three in the morning and knocked on the door and woke him up, told him what had happened. He immediately rang the police. Daryl had had a car accident, hit a telegraph pole and it killed him, which was very sad. And much to the family's dislike and just bad luck, when that pole, after the accident, when that pole had to be surveyed, my dad had to go out and do that. So again, he had to deal with adversity in his job, and it was hard, yeah. it was difficult for him to overcome that because he'd, um, he'd lost a nephew. It showed me his resilience and he used to tell me about how life can throw curveballs at you and how life can be hard sometimes, but you have to keep moving forward and not look back. So I think from those couple of things along my dad's journey, that, that's what's taught me the most. And my family often say, when because when, things get hard for everyone, I'm a, a big sayer of, okay, we have to keep moving forward, guys. We have to keep focused on the road ahead look at the past, learn from its mistakes, learn from what's happened, but let's move forward and try and do things that are better. And that's something I've taken with Dad, never to be overcome by no matter how hard things you think are, no matter what Mm. you think it is, there's always a way forward if if you're focused. Mm, Wise words. Yeah, that's a big thing I've got from Dad. That's great. And would you have any advice for families who are experiencing or recovering from major trauma? Because you've you've definitely had your share of it in terms of what how it's impacted your family. Yeah, I think um, the old school adage of work ethic. If you stay focused on a goal, to try and achieve that goal, and and put effort into that, is a great thing to do. I also I'm also a big believer in talking to family. Family you're always there. If you've got family around or you've got friends around and you need advice, talk to them. Sometimes somebody can spot things that you don't spot and um, Mm. give you some great advice. So talking, looking forward, not being overwhelmed, staying focused on making things better. They're the the things that my dad's taught me along the way in caring for family. That's great. I really appreciate you reaching out to me, Glenn, and walking me through the story. Your dad was unquestionably a strong and resilient man, and I am sure that his legacy lives on in you and your family. So thank you so much for talking to me. That's okay, I appreciate appreciate the opportunity to get my dad's story out there. There'll be a lot of people that want to hear it. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02 7928 We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.